We spent four weeks studying Paul's acknowledgement of his friends. I think it's a good thing to thank God for your friends. I think the older you get, the longer you get along in the Christian life, you want to take note of who your friends are and thank God for them. And he acknowledged Timothy, and he acknowledged Apollos, he acknowledged Stephanus, and with Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, and he acknowledged, as we saw last week, Achille and Priscilla. Now we get into the closing verses. Of course, Paul is giving his salutation there, and Paul closes the chapter off in verse 24. I like that part. He says, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. He just wanted to remind them that he loved them in the Lord Jesus Christ, and uh, he gave his greeting to them. He said, hey, the brethren here in Ephesus send their greeting to you, and uh, he said, greet you one another, the holy kiss. I mean, there's just, there's just a lot of warmth in what Paul is saying here. But then we get to verse 22, and again, as I mentioned earlier, I mean, it just seems to be just, I'm not sure I would really word, the, word it that way, but God has something in mind there. And this, in this closing verse, verse 22, he gives us his love, he gives us a prayer, and he gives us a warning. He uses two words that, if you're not familiar with the Bible, that are just kind of jump out at you. Anathema, Maranatha. Both words are very, uh, they're very powerful in their meaning standalone. Anathema, Maranatha. But combined together, they have a, they're a sobering statement of fact. Combined together, they're a sobering statement of fact. Paul said, if any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema, maranatha. That's pretty strong. And uh, this is the only letter he wrote something like that in, by the way. And I believe that the word maranatha, as I'll say a little bit later, was very prominent, I think, in the, in the usage among the Christian community. But uh, to say anathema, maranatha, had a whole different implication to it. Now, in John 21, our Lord Jesus Christ was speaking to Peter. And we find John 21... Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is doing a restoration of Peter. Peter had uh, fallen away, and uh, Pe- Peter taking some people with him. He thought, thought he'd go back to what he used to do there, going back to fishing. He had a fruitless night fishing, and uh, realizing that God was trying to get his attention, God brought him back in. But Jesus, after he cooked a meal, brought these guys in, gave them a hearty breakfast. He took Peter aside while the other men were watching, and he asked the question, Peter, lovest thou me? Now, I don't know about you, but if the Lord Jesus Christ came to this congregation... And if you can imagine, just imagine me standing right here, the Lord Jesus Christ standing right there. Can you imagine everybody in the congregation, a full house of people, and just turning and looking at Alan Fong and saying, Alan Fong, do you, do you love me? I mean, that's just in front of everybody else. Or can you imagine the Lord Jesus Christ doing that to you and walking up to a group of, to you with a group of your family members, a group of your friends, and just saying, hey, do you love me? And, uh, you know, it's kind of like you're not really sure what you're supposed to say, but you should know what you're supposed to say there. And it was a very awkward moment for Peter, but there was this warmth and tenderness that the Lord Jesus Christ had in those words. And you know the story. I'm not going to go and preach John 21 to you, but, but really Jesus had in mind the restoration of Peter, but he had, to get, he had to get the business with him. And, you know, sometimes we have to be asked certain questions very bluntly and very point, point blank. Do you love me? You know, do you love your church? Do you love your Lord? Do you love your spouse? Do you love your children? Do you love your parents? I mean, do you love me, Jesus said there. And so, you know, we, we can deal with that. But now we get this passage of Scripture, and Paul has this statement. He says, if any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, now, how about those people that don't love the Lord? That's what we're going to look at tonight. We're going to look at this matter about loving Jesus, about anathema, and maranatha. Now, I want you to notice three things tonight. Number one, I want you to notice the romance. The romance. And as I was praying over this earlier this week and thinking about things, I just the Lord put that thought in my mind, to romance. Now, it's a given fact 
that God loves us. We know God loves us. We ought to say amen about that. Amen? God is love. That's His nature, His essence. I said Sunday night, the highest of His attributes is really His holiness. Is really all the emanation of His attributes. Really, all, of his, you know, all His other attributes are emanation of His holiness there. God is love. And we know from 1 John chapter 4 that God demonstrated His love for us by sending His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, into the world to die for our sins. 1 John 4.10, wonderful verse. I still remember when I married Long and Amy back, I think it was 2007, 2008. Uh, Long asked me specifically if I would preach their wedding message off that verse. And I said I'd be glad, glad to do so. And it's a great text for that. 1 John 4.10, here in His love, not that we love God. I think that's important. Now, Paul wasn't saying we hated God, but the unsaved, unregenerate nature does not have in itself a propensity to love God. That's not in your mind. Before I got saved, I didn't think about loving God. I thought about worshiping God, but I didn't think about, you know, because I came from a different background. I never thought about loving God. And John is saying here, not in a, not in a derogatory way or in a, or in a demeaning way, he said here in his love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. Now, God loves us. We know that. That's a given fact. God loves us. He loves us immensely. He loves us wonderfully. But we have to understand something. God loves us. And before we can love God, we have to understand he loves us. So we get down later on. We get saved. We realize Jesus Christ is the propitiation. He's the appeasement for our sins by having died on the cross. And as we get saved and we start, we, we start growing in the faith, we start realizing it's not one way, just God loving us. Amen? It's not one way. It's, it's two ways. It's reciprocal. God loves us. We love God. So we go down a little bit later, 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, and John says this, We love Him because He first loved us. We love Him because He first loved us. So when you think about it, the enormousness of the love of God for us, it should cause the stirring in us that we would reciprocate in the same way. Now, Paul, in his discipling and teaching ministry, his desire is that he would present every believer perfect in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's kind of a, that's a, that's a pretty awesome uh, responsibility, if you think about that, to, to say that he decided that he's in his heart, <coughs> and this was his commission, that he would present every man perfect or spiritually mature before the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I think the word perfect would also include the idea of us loving the Lord. It also includes the fact that we have a love relationship with the Lord, which is why I'm using the first point as a romance. Our love for the Lord Jesus Christ should be an unbreakable romance. Our love for the Lord should be, number one, it should be categorical. It should be a categorical love. Go with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. We should love the Lord categorically, and I'll define that in a minute. In Deuteronomy 6, 5, we have the Lord writing out to Moses what he was to tell the nation of Israel, which was supposed to be all over their homes, was supposed to be everywhere they had. We, it's been called the great commandment. He says, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, all thy soul, and all thy mind. That's categorical. Categorical means without exception unconditionally, absolutely. It means there should be no competition. It means there should be no confusion. 
It is exclusive love, that we love the Lord exclusively. It should be extraordinary love. It should be entire love. The love for our Lord Jesus Christ should be categorical in its content. We love the Lord completely. When Moses uttered those words, he was saying, and I can imagine just saying it very slowly in Hebrew, thou shalt love the Lord thy God. You must have a personal relationship with God. He must be your Savior. You must know Him in that way. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God, that personal relationship with all thy heart. There should be no competition or heart. The Lord should not find any competition or heart for him. With all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might, our entire being should be categorically given over to loving our Lord. But then I see a second thing. Our love for the Lord should be a courtship. Our love for the Lord should be a courtship. Now, um, you know, when you, you know, a courtship is where you want to spend every waking moment with the one you love. You think about them, you message them, you communicate to them, they're on your, they're on your mind all the time, and if you get preoccupied with something else, as soon as that, uh, brother, that preoccupation is done, you're right back there on, on, on top of that. And uh, when you're in a courtship, there's nothing you will not do for the one that you love. You, some of you remember that, just, you know, you're just mindful of that person loving them. And I, and, I, and I draw your attention tonight to Genesis 29, if you'll turn there, Genesis 29, verses 18 to 20. Because courtship love is love that's undivided and is fully attentive. There are no distractions. And in Genesis 29, we have the, the courtship, the romance of Jacob for Rachel. Jacob for Rachel. And, uh, you know, I'm going to read the verse and just give you some side cuts because I don't want to get off to, on, the, on a tangent preaching on this. But it just, it, it pictures for us uh, our, our love for the Lord being like a courtship there. And the Bible says here in Genesis 29, verse 18, And Jacob loved Rachel. I mean, just, it just all you did was stop there. It's great. I think about the fact that Jesus loves the church. Amen? And we may have a lot of defects as a church, and we may have a lot of needs, and we're a work in process, but it doesn't change the fact Jesus loves the church. Now, Jacob didn't know everything about Rachel, but he sized things up at that moment of time, and he just decided in his heart, man, that's the one that this, she's the one that I know that God wants for me. Jacob loved Rachel. And notice what he said in his heart. He told, in fact, he said in his heart, he said it to his future father-in-law Laban. He says, I will serve thee seven years for Rachel, thy youngest daughter. And Laban said, it is better that I give her to thee than that I should give her to another man. Abide with me. Now, a couple of thoughts there. Number one, uh, of course, Laban was tricking him, but Jacob was so in love, he wasn't looking, he wasn't reading between the lines, he wasn't looking at the fine print, anything like that. He basically said, you know, I love your daughter. He says, I will serve you seven years for her. I will give you seven years. Now, I want you to think with me for a minute. He would give seven consecutive years of service so that he could marry Rachel. He would give seven years of his best life so he could marry Rachel. I used to think about this. It probably is a good thing for most courtships that a guy would have to wait seven years before he could marry a girl so he could prove himself. Amen? I don't think that's a good idea in most situations in Western culture, but just a thought there, just a seed thought for some of you that are dating right now, amen? But uh, he said here, I will serve seven years for her. And so Laban thought, well, man, if this, this guy's going to do that and he's going to work for me for free, and that's what basically what Laban's interpreting, that he's going to work for him for free, but per se, he says, well, then, you know, that you've earned my daughter. I'll, I'll give you seven years, you know, for your daughter. And he says, well, I'd rather give her to you than to somebody else. And so the Bible says, Jacob serves, notice verse 20, Jacob serves seven years for Rachel. And I like this last part. They seemed unto him but a few days for the love he had for her. Now I want to ask this question. Are you so in love with Jesus Christ, they just feel like a few days to you? 
I mean, you look forward to, to just coming to church. You can't wait to get to church. You can't wait to have your devotion. You can't wait to go to prayer. You can't wait to read your Bible. You can't wait to get something new from the Lord. And you're, you're just so in love with the Lord that just, they just feel like a few days to you there, that the Christian life doesn't seem long and drawn out and boring. It feels like a courtship to you there. I mean, he proved his love for her. Courtship love is first love. That's what we see here about Jacob and Rachel. Courtship love is first love, that you're so in love with the Lord that, he, that he's first place. There's not going to be any second place. There's no talk about competition. And, and it's amazing when you're in that mode of thinking. It's amazing the heroic feats that you'll do. Go, go back up in Genesis 29. Notice verse 10. When Jacob first saw Rachel, notice what happens here. Notice how this moves him to action. In Genesis 29:10, And it came to pass when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jacob went near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Let's go back and talk about what was going on there. Jacob comes up, he, see, he, 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 he comes to this well, and he sees all the, the, the shepherds around there. And so he says, well, uh, what's going on, guys? They said, why don't you roll the stone away? He said, no, 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 it's not that time yet. We don't roll the stone away. And so here comes, here comes uh, uh, Laban's daughter, Rachel, and she's come with a flock of sheep. You've got to imagine, this, this is a hardworking woman because there's a bunch of men there. She's the one leading all the sheep there. But nobody wants to move, to move this, this heavy stone. And typically it would take more than one man to move the stone. Jacob, Jacob looks at Rachel. He's head over heels about her. He's thinking, this is the woman. And the Bible tells in verse 10, he, without being asked, without being told, he did something very heroic and very mighty. He exerted all the strength that he has. you got to remember now, Jacob was a guy that spent all his time indoors. He was an indoors guy. His brother Esau could be expected to do what he was going to do now. But Esau was the outdoor guy. But Jacob just kind of just exerted himself, rolled up his sleeves, and he rolled that huge stone away off the cover of the mouth. Not only did that, we read the rest of the verses, and he goes back and forth, and he, fe- and he waters the flock for Rachel's sake. I mean, he did some heroic feats. It's amazing what you will do when you're in love. It's amazing the extra over over the top things that you do. But you know what? It shouldn't be just at the beginning. It shouldn't be at the beginning of first love. It should be continuously all the time that we go over the top and do our best because Jesus is worthy of our love. Amen. Jacob stepped up when no one else would. Jacob said, I can do it. I can do it for you. And you know, when you read through Genesis, it's amazing. Some of the heroic things the patriarchs did because they loved the Lord. Now listen, our love for the Lord Jesus Christ should be like a courtship. It should be categorical. But notice something else. Go with me to John 14, 15. Our love for the Lord Jesus Christ should be compliant. It should be compliant. Here's what Jesus said about it. We should love him compliantly. He says, if ye love me. If you love me, remember the disciples, they're in the upper room. They're having a hard time with the fact, getting their heads wrapped around the fact. Jesus is going to die for their sins. And now he's coaching them through some things. I mean, he's just kind of helping them out. He talked about asking his name for prayer. And then he said in verse 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. Obey me. We love the Lord. If we love the Lord. We'll submit ourselves to his word and we'll obey every word he has. The year was 1898, a young man by the name of Ben. He lived on the East Coast, decided he wanted to move west. You know, There's a gold rush and all those type of things that were going on. He wanted to move west to find his fortune. 
to start life on his own. He didn't despise his parents, but he wanted to get out of the shadow of his parents so he could start something of his own. He moved west, didn't have much. He was hoping he could make a fortune, he really never did. But he worked hard, and over a period of time, he accumulated 300 acres of land, which is not small stuff if you consider, you know, acreage. He built a farmhouse on it, very comfortable for him. He's a single man, young man. He raised wheat and corn and vegetables. Had a herd of cattle that he grew to 200 heads. I was talking to Brother Copes, and Brother Copes has got into over there at the colleges. You know, a couple years ago, Brother Copes was sharing my wife and I how he just got into raising cattle there. It's kind of interesting business and what God has done through that. And uh, he told me, next time you come out there, I want to take you to my ranch and see the cattle. I said, I'd love to see it. I'm mean, just very amazed at all, what's, uh, all the intricacies involved with raising cattle. So, this man started with one and had a herd of 200 cattle, and that's not small stuff. One day he thought, you know, I think I'm at this place where I've got my business and my farm and all this down. And he decided, you know what, I think it's time I start thinking about marriage. He put an ad in the New York newspaper. And the ad went something like this, wanted. Now, they did these things in those days. I would not recommend you do that today, okay? In fact, you shouldn't do that today, okay? Wanted a good woman willing to be a pen pal. And some of you don't even know what that is, but back in those days, people would write letters to each other. And then he closed with this, marriage is a possibility for the right woman. He put that out there, and he got a few takers. But only one impressed him. Her name was Molly. They became really good pen pals. There was just some way that through the exercise of the pen, they were able to share things, and over a period of time, they started realizing that their correspondence turned from being friendly to where there were sentiments of love and affection in it. And so... It came a point in time after many, many months that he initiated with her. He says, Molly, do you think there's a chance we could meet? And he said, uh, I'll tell you what, we'll meet halfway. Let's meet in Kansas City. She was way on the East Coast. He was on the West Coast. Let's meet in Midway. We'll meet in Kansas City. He got out there. <clears throat> He's waiting. He got there a couple days before the, the appointment date. The train that she was supposed to arrive on arrived just on time, as it said. And people were streaming off the train, men and women. A lot of women came off. He had never met Molly before. In fact, he didn't even have a picture of Molly. She didn't have a picture of him. She didn't, she didn't really know what she was getting into as well. But as these women were getting off, he took a look, and he looked at this one woman carefully, and he went like this. He said, Molly, is that you? And this woman turned around. And she looked at him. She says, are you Ben? I'm Ben. You must be Molly. And she said, Ben, how could you know I was Molly? There's all these people on this train that got off before me. And at the same time as I did, how did you know it was me? We've never met. We've never exchanged pictures. How did you know? How did you know who I was? And he reached into his pocket. And he pulled out, and he, and he dropped some of them. He pulled out all these letters that he brought with him that she wrote to him. And he put all these letters, and he says, from these, from these letters. She said, but there are no pictures in them. He said, oh, yes, there are. He says, there's lots of pictures in your words. And the point of it was that 
He'd read her letters very carefully. He'd memorized her letters very carefully. Every word, every sentence. And he pictured in his mind over a period of time this woman by the name of Molly. He just pictured her stature, the color of her hair, her demeanor, her walk, everything about it. And when that woman stepped off that train, he said, that has to be Molly there. You see, Ben had fallen in love with her words, words that had painted a portrait of her. Can I tell you something? That's what Jesus wants us to do with his word. Amen? Jesus wants us to read his word and to know his word so intimately and to obey his word so much that we're at this place where we just have so fallen in love with him, we can picture in our mind who Jesus is and what he's all about. I'm saying today, as we think about, about uh, this matter of the romance, Peter, Peter said this, he said, Whom having not seen, yet ye love. I'm saying tonight, are we keeping his commandments? Are we compliant Do we feel like our love for the Lord Jesus Christ is like a courtship, a first love, where we would do heroic feats and mighty deeds, where we feel like that fervency that we had in those early days is still with us today? Do we love the Lord categorically with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind? We see the romance. Would you notice, secondly, would you notice the ruin? The ruin. Now, Paul starts off this letter, this verse, verse 22, by asking, if, if any man, or saying, if any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, who's he talking to there? We've got to go back to the context. He's talking to believers at Corinth. He's not talking to believers at Ephesus, although that would be another letter that John would write. He's, not, he's, not talking to, he's just talking to believers at, at, at Corinth. And you have to remember that Paul has written some, uh, he's had to deal with some tough issues there at Corinth. And there were believers there that were living uh, perhaps in shame and regret. Some had repented, but they were still feeling their shame and regret. But there were some who had not. And Paul knew, as you and I know, there's a battle that rages for our love and affection for Jesus Christ. That battle goes on every day. There's a struggle. The world wants your heart. The flesh wants your heart. The devil wants your heart. There are things that want your heart. And so there's a battle going on. And we have to understand something. Paul lived his life with this one thought. Everybody should love the Lord Jesus Christ. Every saved person, his mind, should love the Lord Jesus Christ. But the reality is, as he wrote this, he said, if any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ. The reality is he's dealing with Corinthian believers where there are some, he was very concerned that they did not love the Lord. That their actions did not indicate match up with their words. That their actions were inconsistent with what was going on. They were absentee Christians. I mean, Paul, if anything, he saw the casualties of spiritual warfare. He saw what happened to John Mark. John Mark got off to a great start with him and Barnabas. But John Mark, after the first trip, took off and went back. He saw what happened to Hymenius and Alexander. Hymenius and Alexander, if you study 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, they rose to spiritual leadership. They, were, they, were, they had influence. In fact, they had such influence, they were teachers. But they grew to this place because of false doctrine they got around that they thought that they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead and some other things there. And Paul saw it. In fact, I believe it's the same Alexander. He says, Alexander the coppersmith has done me much evil. Uh, Paul said with a broken heart, Demas has forsaken me. Notice this, having loved this present world. He knew what worldliness does to the heart of a Christian. He knew that worldliness could affect enemy. By the way, don't say that worldliness could affect you. It affected Demas. Demas was a colleague of Paul that he wrote about in the book of Philemon that Paul had a dear friend 
friendship with. And Demas was at a time, uh, at one time, was just sold out for the Lord. But Demas got kind of sidetracked on things. And the Bible says that he left and went to Thessalonica because he loved this present world. He went into some business endeavor, something like that nature. And he forsook Paul and he forsook the things of God. And Paul wrote that letter with a broken heart by closing off. Demas hath forsaken me. John the Apostle said this, If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not, is not in him. I mean, Paul dealt with the reality that people, that are, there are Christians who just don't love the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's telling us, if any man loves not the Lord Jesus Christ, he's implying it's a sin. He's implying it's a reproach not to love the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's what he says. If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema. A curse. A cursed. Let him be cursed. That's strong. I, I'm not sure I could get up and be that strong at the pulpit and say, if you don't love God, may the curse of God be on you. <laughs> That's pretty strong. But Paul had dealt with some tough stuff. And Paul had, had dealt with situations that broke his heart. And he knew the reality was, was this. If he didn't say it, the reality of it, it's there. And we'll see that from Scripture tonight. He says, if any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. I'll call your attention tonight, if you'll turn there for a moment, to 2, Kings, 2 Samuel 16. And then after that, we'll go to 1 Kings 2. First, 2 Samuel 16, verses 5 to 8, this is a, a great symbol here, or picture, tells us the story of a man by the name of Shimei. Shimei was of the household of Saul. Those of the household of Saul who were still alive felt that Paul, I mean, uh, David's banishment out of the land by his son Absalom was, was basically repayment for Saul's death. The people of Saul, Saul's lineage did not care very much for David. They felt like Saul was the true king, and they felt like David did a job on them, and he did not. And we find David at a very low point in his life. He's walking up a hill. He's discouraged. His son has turned, has turned on him. The kingdom's turned on him. People believe the lies of Absalom. Uh, you know, his trusted counselor, Ahithophel, who got very bitter with David, uh, you know, teamed up with, with that. It was a very terrible situation. And even though David had his mighty men with him, people like that, I mean, David was in a very discouraged situation. He's the king without a throne. He's walking by the hill, and this guy comes out by the name of Shimei. He knew Shimei. And Shimei is cursing him. I mean, he's just saying really, really bad things to David and about David. And he's basically telling David, you're a bloody man, and uh, you're getting back judgment on you because of what you did. And at the same time, he's throwing, he's throwing rocks at him. He's cursing him and throwing rocks at him. He's ridiculing him. It's kind of almost challenging David. He's throwing rocks at him and saying, well, you know, I'm going to throw rocks to you because, you know, we throw rocks to people we despise. We throw rocks to people we want to see dead. We throw rocks to people we don't want to see alive. I mean, that was his attitude. He basically said, you know, David, I wish you were dead. David, I wish you weren't around. You deserve what you're getting there. And David got all that. And of course, you know, one of David's mighty men said, wait a minute, David, who is this dog that he should do such a thing to the king to let me go? I'll take this guy's head off for you and we'll do it. And David said, no, no, don't do that because probably I'm deserving everything he said. I mean, David was at this point of just, he was so confused about his life at that moment. He just didn't really know what to say and he just said, no, leave him alone there. Well, go from there and, and notice, go down to 2 Kings 2. As you turn to 2 Kings 2, let me make a couple statements. 
A Christian who arrives at the place in their life where they don't love the Lord, honestly, they're probably spiteful of Him. They despise His person, the precepts, their anger at others, like towards the preacher, is really not towards the people, it's really towards God. That's why God had to remind Moses many times, it's not you that they're mad at, they're mad at me. And they may not curse the Lord with their mouth, but they curse Him with their life. They throw stones of rebellion and anger and bitterness and scorn at Him. You know, social media has opened up a platform where people post things and put things on there. And in many situations where there's something very aberrant or very different that goes on a posting, the person is sending a message out. They're telling people about kind of where they've arrived in their Christian life. Or they're like, they've, they, they've changed their position. So when they put something, they're making a statement. They want you to know that they, they've changed your position. If they put a different version of Scripture on there or something like that, they're just telling you, they're sending you a statement there. Or they put a, post a picture, they're trying to send you a statement that where, where they've changed that. And they really don't care what people think about it. And, you know, it's, it goes beyond what people think about it. It's more importantly, what does God think about it? Amen. Now we get to 2 Kings 2, we have this instance where Shimei did all these things. David now has been restored to the kingdom, but David's gone beyond that. David now has gone home to be the Lord, and he, he warned Solomon. Solomon's the new king, and he said, now Solomon, you're my son, but I've got to tell you, there's some things that you're going to inherit as you become king. They're going to be tough things. I just want you to be prepared for them. And one of the things he had to inherit was Shimei. Well, Solomon reaches out to Shimei, but he doesn't reach out to him to be friends with him. He reaches out to him as a king to a, ser- to a subject and he commands him, if you read it here in verses uh, 36 to 46, he commands Shimei to build his house in Jerusalem. Now, here's what I want you to do. He says, Shimei, my father, my father loved you, but you cursed him, and you threw rocks at him, and you did things that were very spiteful. Him. But in spite of that, he said, we're going to be merciful to you. By the way, how many of you are glad of God's mercies towards us? Amen. You know, and he said, I'll be merciful to you. He says, you build your house here in Jerusalem, but do not leave that house. You build your house here, but never leave Jerusalem. You're to stay here. The moment you leave Jerusalem, the moment you leave here, you're a dead dog. You're going to be killed. You forfeited your life. You put your life on the line. Well, time went along, and, uh, you know, it, when, when, when Solomon made that statement, she may say, I could deal with that. That's fine. I can stay here. Well, about two or three years later, he had a couple of servants that ran away. They left Jerusalem and went to a foreign land. And he didn't even give any thought about the fact that he had pledged and promised and covenanted that he wouldn't leave Jerusalem, that he knew that his life would be on the life he did so. But you know what Shimei thought? Shimei was, you know, it just I disregarded David, and I don't think Solomon really means it. I think Solomon's less of a man than, than David. So you know what Shimei does? He saddles up a couple of his donkeys. He goes out there. He goes way out there and goes after these, 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 these two servants, brings them back. But people have been watching him. And the word gets back to Solomon. And he calls Solomon calls him into his presence. When he does so, he says, uh, Solomon confronts him. He says, didn't I tell you to build your house here and to stay here? Didn't I tell you? He said, yeah. But why did you leave? He said, well, my servants left. It doesn't matter. I don't care how much it costs you to recover those servants. Those servants are not more important than the commitment you made to me. And so Shimei lost his life. And Solomon turned around and says, remember I made that statement to you that you would lose your life. And Solomon turned around and told Benaiah. He said, Benaiah, I need your help. You need to go take this man out. And he took him out because he told him, if you leave the city, this is what's going to happen. You know what happened to Shimei? The curse he put on God, on Jesus, on, on David, excuse me, because David's a picture of Jesus. The curse he put on him came back on him. Anathema. He was cursed. Let me say tonight, there is a ruin. 
There is a ruin for every believer if they love not the Lord Jesus Christ. When you don't love Jesus, you're not going the same direction as Jesus. You're not going the same direction as His Word. You're not, you're not willing to please Him and honor Him. I'm talking about someone who's totally off base there. They are anathema. Listen, the word anathema, this is how strong the word is. Paul, in Romans chapter 9, uses that same word. He describes his heart's affection for the nation of Israel. He is so burdened for Israel to get saved. I mean, he had, I mean if all of us had a, had a heart like Paul for a country, and our country to be saved, I mean, our world would be, there would be much more evangelization and so many that we're doing. Paul had said a great burden. And he said this in Romans chapter 9, verse 3. So he's writing to the Romans. He said, For I could wish my, that myself were cursed or anathema, from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to flesh. Literally, he's saying there, I wish I could be the, I, the curse of God could be on me. I could be cursed. Another he's saying, I wish I could go to hell for my brethren, the Jews. That's how strong the word is. I'm saying that I wish the curse was upon me. Now, let me say this because I don't want to spend a lot of time on that. But the despising of Jesus Christ that Hebrews 10 speaks of, and the trampling underfoot the Son of God, and the despising of the Spirit of grace brings anathema. Because as we read through that passage, it tells us it is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. It's speaking about being spiteful. That's the fourth stage of spiritual decline, which is a very dangerous place to be. In Hebrews chapter 6, Paul, uh, Paul said this, of, of not loving the Lord and, 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 and despising Him. He says, it is being at this place where at one time we tasted the heavenly gift and the good word of His power and the power of the world to come. But now we're at this place where we crucify to ourselves the Son of God afresh and put Him to an open shame. In other words, we've tasted the heavenly gift of salvation. We've, uh, we've received the good word of God. We've received the powers of the worlds to come. That means we've received the gift of eternal life. We know that our sins are forgiven. We know the Holy Spirit lives in us. But because we are living, uh, we're not living the life that we're supposed to live and we've gone away from God and we've made it very known that we're not living for God and we do not love the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what he's saying? We're crucifying to ourselves the Son of God afresh and we're putting him to an open shame. We're basically saying, who cares Jesus died for me? Who cares that about that? I don't really, doesn't really bother me. We're at this place which is a very terrible place to be where we love not the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus told the church at Ephesus, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, for thou hast left thy first love. Churches that leave their first love don't have zeal, don't have passion. How they did things in the beginning, they don't do it anymore. They've gone from having motivation and momentum to it's just mechanical. Maybe you're that way. You're just doing things out of routine, not because you love the Lord, not because of a romance. And we've got to be very careful. We've got to put our heart and our attitude, our spirit in check when those things happen there. So here's what Paul said, I mean John said to them. He says, remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works. In other words, he said, he says, remember, repent, and repeat. He says, remember where you fell. He says, remember where that happened. Remember where you stopped giving. Remember where you stopped participating. Remember where you stopped showing that passion, that love, that friendliness, that love towards God. And he says, when you remember where that happened, repent of it. And then he said, repeat the first words. Go back to doing the things that you did before. And I would use the example of courtship. Giving the flowers, giving the candy, calling all the time, sending all the messages, not, not, uh, not taking advantage of the relationship, being mindful of the relationship, having, uh, you know, just due respect for that. And here's what John will later say. He says, if you don't, 
if you don't remember, if you don't repent, if you don't repeat, he says, or else I will come unto thee quickly and remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. You know what Jesus is saying there? The church that loses its love for the Lord and is not on fire for him and doesn't repent and doesn't go back to his first. You know what he does? He tells us basically we forfeit our right to existence. He says, you, I will remove your candlestick out of your place. You know, it's kind of interesting. That's why the Lord Jesus Christ tells us in Matthew chapter 16, he says this. Listen, he says, upon this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail. There's perpetuity in local New Testament churches. Because one church fails and churches fail because people fail. God doesn't fail, but the people fail. If a church fails, if, if it forfeits its right to exist, God just raises up a new church. He raises up another one to do, to do the job. I mean, that's why God raised up Heritage Baptist Church. God raised up this church. And God willing, this coming Sunday, if the Lord doesn't come first, we've been, we've been here for 22 years. I mean, there were churches before us. I've, I've shared this before. At one time, the city of Oakland, there were probably as many as three or four thriving churches at that time. There was a time Harry Ironside, the great Bible teacher, who once pastored Moody Memorial Church, which was which would considered a fundamental church in the days gone by. Uh, uh, there was a time Harry Ironside, I'd actually preached in some of those churches. I still remember, I'm not going to call this, I still remember a couple of those churches that were thriving. I remember, the, I remember one that was right there in the heart of East Oakland there that was a conservative Baptist church and one time had as many as a thousand people in it. And then they decided to get out of their area and they sold the church and moved the property and things like that. And they went to different places. And if you go to the location right now, they're just a small smidgen of what they used to be. I don't even think they run 30 people on a given Sunday. They have all this land. And our church tried to go after that land years ago, but they, wouldn't, they just wouldn't let go of it. They've gone nowhere. Nothing's happened there. And they've tried everything. They've tried praise and worship, man. They've tried everything they could to get these going. They can't get anything going there. Listen, they, you, when you lose your love for the Lord, you forfeit your right to existence. San Leandro had at one time three or four thriving independent Baptist churches. Thriving. Soul winning. Winning souls. And we can name places after places after places. Jesus said he would remove the candlestick out of his place. Anathema. My friend, tonight, you know, we can't play both sides of the fence and please God. You can't love God and love mammon. You can't love God and love this present world. There is ruin, terrible ruin. Paul said, if any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema. We see the romance. We see the ruin very quickly tonight. Go back to the verse 22. He says, if any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema. But he closes with this word, maranatha. We see a romance. We see a ruin. But we also see the rapture. On the flip side of the coin... Paul is saying this, let them be cursed. But he's praying, he's saying, even so, come Lord Jesus, come. Maranatha means, even so, come Lord Jesus, come. And Paul closes off this letter off by referencing his desire, his earnestness, his prayer for the rapture of the church, for the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ for his people. Yes, there's a curse, but there's also a coming and he wants us not focused on not loving the Lord, but loving his appearing. Because Paul talked about that in 2 Timothy. About loving his appearing and desiring the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me close by giving you three thoughts, three quick thoughts about the rapture. Number one, I want you to consider me the promise of the rapture. The promise of the rapture. Now Jesus promised it in John 14. He said this. He said, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Listen to this. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus promised it. 
Hey, the angels promised it. The angels promised Jesus would come again. As Jesus ascended up to heaven, here's what they said. They said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. I mean, Jesus promised the rapture. The angels promised to rapture. Paul promised to rapture in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He said in verses 16 to 17, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up or harpazoed or snatched out of this world together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord. I mean, Paul talked about, John talked about that in 1 John 2, 28. I mean, we have the promise of the rapture. So the believers at Corinth already knew about that. And part of Paul's systematic theology part of his discipling process that he always talked about eschatology. He always talked about the coming of the Lord. He talked about rewards of the judgment seat of Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5, he spends a little bit more time about the second coming of Christ. But Paul made mention, of fact, about the promise of his coming. But notice something else here that we forget about. Go with me to the little book of Jude. The little book of Jude, one chapter. The little book of Jude, one chapter. I want you to notice verse 24. There's not just a promise. There's a presentation at the rapture. Now I want to encourage you tonight. The emphasis tonight is not on us not loving the Lord. The emphasis tonight is about us loving God. Amen? About loving our Lord Jesus Christ. We want, God wants us to love Him. God wants us to have a romantic relationship with Him. And it says it's even like a courtship. And we love Him categorically. We love Him compliantly. And the Bible says this, as we think about apostasy and the context in which Jude wrote this, there was great apostasy. And he wanted to encourage these believers that they could finish strong. And he talked about things like keep yourselves in the love of God and praying in the Holy Ghost and keep yourselves in the looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he said, you ought to go soul wedding. And he says, some saved with compassion, others saved with fear. Then he gets to verse 24 and he says, now unto him, that's talking about our Lord, unto him that is able to keep you from falling. Now that's a word of encouragement, amen? He's talking about a presentation here. He's saying, now listen, you, you may feel like, well, you know, maybe I'm a failure and I, I'm really not that strong and I can't make it. But he's reminding us, we don't do the keeping of our salvation. It's not up to us to do the keeping. God does the keeping. God does the securing of our salvation. And he says here, listen, to keep you from falling out of fellowship. He says, now to him that is able to keep you from falling. And by the way, God is able to keep us from falling. He doesn't allow any temptation to come to us that, that we cannot withstand. He says, and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. You know what our Lord's goal for the rapture? The Lord is working in your heart and mine. The Lord is working to our hearts through preaching. God is working through our hearts through our devotions. God is working through our hearts through the Word of God. God is working through our hearts through godly friends. God is working through our hearts through, through prayer. God is working through our hearts as we serve Him. God is working the hearts to remind us He doesn't want us to fall out. He doesn't want us to backslide. He doesn't want us to be carnal Christians. He doesn't want us to be washouts and failures. He doesn't want us to wind up like John Mark did in those early days. He wants us to know that he is more than able to keep us from falling. Why? Because he, his ultimate goal is to present us faultless before him at his coming with, with glory and exceeding great joy. Man, that's great. Amen? That's great stuff. That the Lord wants to present you and I. He doesn't set us up for failure. He wants us to stand before him knowing that we did our best. That we can say like Paul, I have fought a good fight. I've kept the course. I have finished the faith. I've kept the faith. He wants us to know that we can say that confidently like the Apostle Paul. God's will is that we're presented faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy. That we can know that we're raptured. Jesus, thank you for helping me to, to finish strong. 
Jesus, thank you for helping me keep my eyes on you. Jesus, thank you for helping me not to let bitterness get a control of me. Thank you, Jesus, that I, that I didn't fail you. We see the promise of the rapture, the presentation rapture. But as we close, I want you to think with me about the word Maranatha, the prayer for the rapture. He says this, Maranatha, at the tip of our tongue, perhaps at the close of every prayer, we ought to pray, Maranatha, even so, come Lord Jesus. As believers at Corinth were having a tough time. Paul had to address some serious issues. Many repented. They felt inadequate. He's kind of giving them warning. You, know, you, need to get, you need to get back on the place of realizing that, you know, you can live for God. And some were not living for God. Some had not repented. Paul was still praying that they would. And he said, anathema, maranatha. He says, there's a curse, but Jesus is coming. Let that be in your prayer. Let that be in your mind. The Lord is coming soon. Believers in those days, because persecution was running amok and crazy, they greet one another with this word, Maranatha, he's coming. Maranatha, he's coming. Beloved, I can't tell you what's going to happen this year, four years from now. But I will tell you from things we're reading, things that are out there that we know about, they're not getting better. The love of many is growing cold, and iniquity is going to abound. We live in a difficult society, a difficult world. That doesn't mean our Lord is not above it. That doesn't mean we can't be victorious. But we have to realize there's more pressures, more forces contending with us and against us to steal our love from the Lord. I encourage you tonight, love the Lord. We go into our 22nd anniversary as a church. Love the Lord. Look forward to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It might be the Lord might even come before them. But as we celebrate 22 years, let's not just kick back and take off our shoes and think everything's going to be fine. This is the time for us to be more engaged, more involved, and to get more of God's power and to seek His face that God's perfect will will be done through Heritage Baptist Church. Maybe tonight as you're watching, there's a prayer for the Lord's coming. But there must be a prayer for your salvation, a prayer for your conversion. If you're not saved tonight, you're not sure you're going to heaven, the greatest thing God wants you to know is that He loves you. Jesus died for your sins. He had to pay the price for you. He offers to you the free gift of eternal life. Would you call on the Lord tonight to save you? Would you ask Him to be your Savior? Your very first prayer, really, that God will answer is the prayer of faith of asking Christ to be your Savior. Right where you're at tonight, in your living room, you can repent of your sins, confess that you're a sinner, and believe with all your heart that Christ died for you and rose from the dead. I hope that you'll do that. I hope for every believer that we will just embrace the thought that we do love the Lord and embrace Him and tell the Lord, I love you, Lord. And uh, we'll just make our every effort, if we can, this coming Sunday to get lost people to hear the gospel on, when, on next, this coming Sunday morning as Brother Lett comes to preach and be encouraged. And I can't think of a more capable preacher that, to preach the gospel than Brother R.B. Ouellette this coming Sunday. And you, you pray with me that God will do a great job through us and with us for his glory.